Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hi. Glad you made it. Um, and uh, yeah, there will be uh, there will be more filtering in. This is so cool. Um, uh, I'm wondering, is the light enough here, or uh, let's take a vote? Uh, no. Who would like more light? I mean, light right over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. Let's let's be specific. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, hmm. It is. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. That's music to my ears. Yeah. <clears throat> Could you be with me all the time and just remind me? <laughs> Uh, so it's so wonderful to be here and, um, uh, and, and share the day with you and with all of my incredibly wonderful, neat friends. Uh, and I think before we, we start uh, getting into any material, let's just sit quietly together and uh, other people will filter in. There's a lot of great energy in the room, and let's just uh, kind of um, distribute it uniformly and um, um, grounding while being spacious to let all this great energy uh, bathe all of us. So uh, without too detailed instructions, um, just for a few moments, uh, know that you're alive sitting here. Feel the earth beneath you through the chair, the floor. Feel the earth support you. It's right here for you. Then uh, breathe in a calming energy. Let it fill your whole being. And as you breathe out, let go. Let go of anything that you don't need. Let the breath find its own natural rhythm and simply sit here, know your breathing. Let the mind be very spacious so all the sounds and sensations and thoughts and feelings can just be held in a space of awareness and let your experience be just the way it is and receive it with a relaxed, interested, kind awareness.
in this place of stillness, for a moment just uh, reflect on some blessing in your life. And as you do, get in touch with the good fortune of that blessing and the gratitude you might feel. And with that same openness of heart that perhaps you're in touch with, let yourself open to the day and let it be a nourishing experience that supports you in as much well-being as is available to you today. Let that be your seed of intention for the day, that it can be nourishing and open you to all the goodness in your life. Hi, here we are again. <laughs> now wake up. <clears throat> so um, it is a real delight, a real, can, if I can say, a real joy to, uh, to uh, see you here and share the day with, with you. And, uh, oh yeah, is that, is that Rick? Are you back there? Rick? Yes, it is. Are you? Yeah, there are seats for you up here if you want. Okay. Oh, I. She just. She just. Is Rick and Greg here? I said no. Oh, so. Oh, hi. Good to see you. Hey, guys. Now we can start the show. Now. Okay. So we're up there. Oh. Um, so um, it, this is. It's really. Uh, it's really a special uh, day for me because. Uh, not only do I, I get to be with you and, and share uh, about this book that's uh, come, just come out, but uh, also I get to share with you so many neat people. It's one of the, the most fun things in my life to say, hey, check this wonderful person out. You know, and I get to do it a lot today. So uh, thanks so much for all the, all the good friends and wise uh, wise people who are here that will uh, will share with you, and um, and most of all that I get to do it with my uh, my 
partner in crime? No. <laughs> my, with my wonderful uh, co-author, Shoshana Alexander, uh, who's here from uh, Ashland, Oregon. And uh, <clears throat> I'll just uh, say a, a few words about Shoshana, and uh, then uh, we'll, we'll share some stuff together. Uh, if you've been around Spirit Rock for a while, uh, then you might recognize Shoshana. Uh, she uh, ran the family program for, uh, for a few years uh, before she moved uh, out, of, uh, out of the area. And uh, she really left a major imprint and impact in bringing the Dharma to a whole other level at uh, Spirit Rock for the Children in the Family program. It went from being a really wonderful, uh, safe place for children to, uh, uh, to feel the goodness of the vibes to really uh, giving them some deep dharma as well on the retreats, the family retreats, and the, um, and the classes and all the activities here. So she's very much part of this community and we go back a long ways. Uh, as I share in the, uh, in the acknowledgments, I first met Shoshana on my uh, second retreat in 1976 in Toledo, Washington. And we also sat the first three-month retreat at, uh, at Insight Meditation Society in, uh, later on that fall. But uh, my first encounter with her was... Um, a very memorable moment. I was overwhelmed with a huge mountain of pots that I was assigned uh, to clean. At the, I was assigned. It wasn't a volunteer job. Um, and I was feeling really sorry for myself, um, not thinking I'd get to the sitting on time and, you know, why did I have to get stuck with this? And in the middle of that internal grumbling... Um, this angel came over and whispered, would you like some help? It was love at first sight. <laughs> and she's been helping me and supporting me, and I've been reaping the, the benefits of her wisdom and her good heart uh, ever since. Uh, she, uh, Shoshana and, and I and... Uh, and my wife Jane and uh, Wes Nisker and a few others shared a, a, a really wonderful uh, communal house, uh, home in, uh, in the East Bay for uh, a number of years as well. And uh, she brought to the book, it wouldn't have happened, uh, she, she was the one who said, you know, you should write a book. I said, really? And then she kept on encouraging me and I knew that she had to be a part of it because she's brilliant with the written word and also brings uh, such deep uh, practice, dharma practice and wisdom, and um, helped birth some of the great dharma classics like uh, Tara Brock's Radical Acceptance and Sharon Salzberg's Faith. Those brilliant books uh, wouldn't be as brilliant uh, if it weren't for Shoshana's uh, input. And I said, we're doing this together. So uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Shoshana, and uh, share you with everyone. Thank you, James. It's easy to love somebody who helps you wash the pots. 
<laughs> Remember that. <laughs> I've often been saying that when I was a child, I remember that talking about God was one of my favorite activities. I have no idea what we said when we were these little kids of eight and nine years old, but I do remember there was a tremendous pleasure in it. And when James and I met, we were both totally in love with the Dharma. And that is what our friendship became. <clears throat> Talking about the Dharma had that same kind of experience. A deep pleasure. We would talk until late at night. We would try to figure out all these little ways of, you know, keeping aware. Are you being mindful now? You might know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I wasn't being mindful. Right, are you being mindful? <laughs> but I do remember that now that you mentioned it. <laughs> In the elevator. <laughs> so doing this book together was really um, an extension of that kind of friendship um, because we had thousands of hours of talking about the Dharma, <laughs> hundreds of emails, uh, hours and hours of phone calls, hours and hours of trying to hammer this out side by side. So it has been a real honor and a joy to create this book with James, and because books are really a challenge to do. It has also been what I call a blessed challenge. <laughs> Not James. <laughs> the book. <laughs> and I, I also have to say that through these years and also through this process, which has been really four solid years, and then before that time as well connected with the book, have seen that James has really sincere motivation for each person to be happy and a real dedication to the Dharma. Uh, there, it, it's, it, you will see when you read this book, there were some places where he really had to come up against himself, and uh, he tells all. Um, <laughs> now you want to buy it. Um, <laughs> So just one other thing I want to say is besides this really brilliant program that he's come up with based on and deeply in Buddhist principles, he has also suggested doing, as some of you know, from taking the course. There's somebody who is in some suffering. Um, supportive practices. They include things like moving your body, dancing, exercise, um, doing, uh, doing creative kinds of things like singing, painting, doing a nourishment list of things that really support you and then choosing from that. Well, this uh, last couple of days I was staying with some dear friends, Ted and Lorinda Gilmore Graves, and uh, Ted who has really prided himself on the power of negative thinking. <laughs> has started in his journal keeping track of joyful experiences. And so I just wanted to share with you a creative way he's done it because part of this is coming up with your own creative ways. In his 
in his journal, he often writes down a little haiku connected with awakening joy. He discovered, you know, haiku is five, seven, five syllables like that. So he discovered that awakening joy is five syllables. And so he writes these little haiku. Here is one that he did the other day walking out around his home in Dillon Beach. Dear quail and rabbits, right? Five syllables, dear quail and rabbits. Nature's bounty before me, seven syllables, awakening joy. <laughs> That's what he has decided he's going to continue doing. Mm. So I thought I would offer that one to you. Oh, cool. mm. Thank you, Ted. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit uh, about uh, how how this came to be and um, uh, some of the, the the basic principles of the book and the course. Um, oh, and while I think about it, just for those uh, who are interested, we've just started this uh, this this next year's course. The live classes started, uh, and uh, people do it online as well. And all the people who are doing it online, it's just starting this next week. And uh, I invite you. There's some brochures in the uh, around those uh, kind of uh, light green brochures. And uh, you can uh, check out the website. It's available to anyone who wants to do it. There's a suggested donation, but people can offer whatever they want to do it. And it goes over a course of 10 months. And if you put your uh, intention into it, um, it the, the practices can really support you in that. So you might check it out. So I, um, I started... Uh, writing about and and then ending up uh, doing this course uh, about joy when uh, I had gone through a a period where I got very serious about practice. I started off in practice in 1974 in, in Vipassana practice in uh, Buddha Dharma in 1974 and it's, it saved me as probably a number of people here could could relate to. I was in a lot of suffering and I fell in love with the practice and with with the Dharma and for quite some time it was just the most wonderful thing. It's always been the most wonderful thing in my life but there was a a great openness and freedom and, and expansiveness and at some point I got very serious about practice, dead serious about practice and I somehow lost my joy. And this is, it's not such a, 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 an unusual thing, actually. People can sometimes get serious. In fact, I, I feel like reading this quote from Ajahn Sumedho to just, uh, in case this is something uh, you might relate to. He says, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's one of the most revered uh, uh, Theravadan uh, monastics, the, the, the most respected Western monastic, uh, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. <laughs> or, if you, or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel 
just just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. <laughs> this is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, the uh, suffering in life, and the selfless nature of existence. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. And I had lost my joy. And when I reclaimed it, because part of me has always been naturally... um, not always, but, uh, but for quite some time, just so grateful to be alive and delighting in, in the, the goodness of life. But I, I, got, uh, I lost that. And when I, when I reclaimed it, I wanted to say, see where I had gone wrong. Because the Buddha is called the happy one. Right? And the, the Dalai Lama starts out his book, The Art of Happiness, the purpose of life is to be happy. So I had just kind of missed something here and in fact had tangled up the end of suffering with the end of living. And as I would go to a, 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 a talk by a Burmese master, may you speedily get off the wheel of samsara and escape from the woes of this world into, into the bliss of nibbana. Uh, and uh, that was just one one aspect of of the teachings because other other aspects are rapture, joy, uh, happiness, contentment, all kinds of states. Joy is a factor of enlightenment and it's also a, one of the divine abodes. There's re- the Buddha said, go for the highest happiness and you'll get all the other ones and you can let yourself enjoy them. So when I looked at the teachings, I saw a few, um, a few aspects of them that made sense to me that could maybe be used as a doorway to access this happiness that he was talking about. The first of these teachings is the fact that there are wholesome states that he highly recommended developing in the wise effort, the teaching on wise effort, There's guarding against unwholesome states like anger and fear and confusion and 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 greed and those those you know those right that make you feel small and contracted and uh, and and suffer. And he said there's wholesome states like love, kindness, generosity, um, compassion. All gratitude, many, many wholesome states that, that lead to happiness. That's why they're called wholesome. And he said it's good to develop those states if they haven't yet arisen. And if they have, to maintain and increase those wholesome states. He said that's a good thing. That's part of the definition of wise effort. So that's first aspect, to develop and maintain and increase wholesome states, states that lead to real happiness, not the fleeting happiness of a a quick hit of of pleasure, which is fine, but 
it's not going to be lasting and satisfying. So wholesome states, and as we go through the day, you'll get the 10-month course in, in one day kind of condensed, and we'll be, uh, I'll be inviting my friends to talk about different of these wholesome states, and you might get a sense of the possibilities of developing them more and more in a conscious way. Second principle is the fact that with wholesome states, there is a gladness that accompanies them. And in one of the discourses, the, the Buddha says, that gladness connected with what is wholesome, one gains inspiration in the meaning. One, it gladdens the heart. Inspiration, you're inspired by the truth of how good that feels. And he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. So to tune into that gladness when you're in the middle of a wholesome state, you're actually giving uh, the antidote to any ill will, hostility, cruelty, negativity. And he says in this one discourse, in the middle of a generous act, he gives the example, you should say to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. Not, hey, aren't I cool? I hope everybody sees how generous. But rather, oh, how good it feels for generosity to move through me and to not miss that gladness, that uplift of the spirit. That is what I'm calling awakening joy. It's right there that accompanies the real happiness of wholesome states as we more and more access the good feeling, that gladness that's right inside of us that we don't have to manufacture. It's not we have to go looking for it out there. It's right here inside of us when we uncover the, the obscurations and, and, and move from the stress that we usually find ourselves caught in. This is our natural state like a baby that squeals with delight when she or he is fed and their diapers are changed and they have a sufficient love. It's like, wow, isn't life wonderful? That's who we all were and we all are if we remember. So that's the second. Developing wholesome states, being with the gladness that accompanies them. And the third teaching that really struck me is um, the Buddha's Um, line, he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Pretty straightforward. Can you argue with that? If you frequently think and ponder upon how the world is a mess, life sucks, and everybody around is a jerk, and they'll just disappoint you, you'll have ample evidence to confirm your (laughs) hypothesis. And that will be the lens that you'll look through life. And that's where your mind and heart will naturally land. If you frequently think and ponder upon how amazing it is to be alive, how your body just works without you even trying to sort it out or do the battles with all the the invaders that are coming in, or how your heart can feel love, or how your mind can think and create and be playful, or how you can see the goodness in others if you just look a little bit or invite it out. 
that we all want to feel love and be safe and feel accepted and belong, that we're not so different. If you frequently think and ponder upon those things and how blessed it is to be in a human body, one of the amazing good karma, uh, aspects of good karma in Buddhist teachings, how amazing it is to be born in a human body that can feel and think and love and become awake. That will become the inclination of your mind that you look at life through. And over time, if you keep on practicing looking looking for the good, then that's where you naturally land. Not that you're living in denial, not that you're saying, oh yes, isn't life always wonderful? No, as my, as my dear friends uh, uh, who you'll meet in a few moments say in their, in their brilliant book, How We Choose to Be Happy, happy people are not happy all the time. That's living in denial. Yes, I'm a happy person, you know, and you kind of get lockjaw. Uh, you know. But happy people, people who really are, in, are engaged with life and f- can feel centered and capable and uh, able to meet everything that comes and you're holding it in a bigger perspective where you see the goodness and you can open up to all the hard stuff in a way that doesn't get overwhelming and that you can keep on learning from as you're going through all of the lessons that come in your life. So this is the, the heart of this program and this book. Those three principles, cultivating wholesome states, feeling the gladness, being present for the gladness that accompanies them, and over time, inclining the mind more and more in that direction. And that's where you you start to shift your default setting in your heart and in your mind. Um, Let's see. The, in the course and in the book which expands and deepens the material of the course, James has provided a menu. Uh, and I like to think of that as an analogy that you go into a restaurant, you can read the menu, and some restaurants have such fabulous menus, just reading them is a delight. That's like the teachings and the ideas of this. But you don't eat the menu. You take something from the menu, you take it in, you digest it, you really make use of it. And so as we go along through this, Alphanon during the day will we'll do some of the little practices that come in the book, but keep that in mind. It's wonderful to hear the ideas and really taking it in and doing the practices, inclining the mind, paying attention to that gladness when it arises. And it arises spontaneously sometimes, you'll note. Uh, that's the secret to really making this successful. Mm-hmm. Great. So the, uh, the first course on the menu um, is the wholesome intention to be happy. And um, for this, uh, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce um, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who really were the uh, major catalysts in this whole program, this whole endeavor. Um, 
Hmm. You are. <laughs> we'll get up in a moment. No, no, you're gonna you're gonna take my place, our places in a moment. So this is Rick Foster, Greg Hicks, and um, and they wrote a book called How We Choose to Be Happy, which uh, Jane, my wife Jane, gave me for my birthday in 1999. And I read it and I said, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. They didn't know much about Buddhist philosophy, but they had interviewed these... is it okay if I share it, or do you Please. want to share? Please, yeah, we okay. knew nothing about Buddhist philosophy. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, ha, they, so they interviewed uh, for three years or so, three hundred plus certifiably happy people. <laughs> <laughs> they go into a town in rural Alabama and say, "Who's the happiest person you know?" And they and they go into the diner and they and people would say, "Oh, Shirley, she's 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 the happy one." They <laughs> and they'd. Uh, and they'd ask, uh, they'd ask Shirley, uh, can we, uh, can we, are you pretty happy? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. And can we interview some other people who might know other sides of you, like your family or your relatives, your coworkers? And when it was, when it was clear, yeah, everybody said, Shirley's pretty happy. They said, why are you so happy? And they uh, got the secrets of all of these happy people that were distilled into nine different choices. So the, the book is... The, how we choose to be happy, the, the nine choices of, of happiness. And their first choice is intention. And as I read this book, just one last thing, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some um, talks in my Thursday group in Ber- Berkeley, and we're going to use this, and I want to give the talks through a Buddhist lens, uh, because all of them pretty much co- uh, corresponded to Buddhist teachings. And I said, we're going to do this for the next few months. And the whole community just got happier and happier. I said, I think we're on to something here. <laughs> and then I, uh, I, I, I tweaked, and, and, and uh, most of the, many of the, the uh, steps are the choices from their book. And I added uh, a few other ones and, 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 and gave it my, my own uh, my own personal uh, feel to it, uh, but I am in real deep gratitude. Here, you're going to be up here, so you can take this. Uh, and uh, deep gratitude, and not only for the their book and for what uh, it it provided for for me to share in in my own way but for their friendship, because uh, f- amazingly, fortunately, they live, they live here in the Bay Area. Not so amazingly when I think about it, but, uh, <laughs> but not far from me. And we've become good friends, and I really cherish and, and value their friendship as well as their wisdom. So, Rick and Greg. Oh, wait, there's an announcement. Honda Del Sol... Uh, please, this is blocking someone who needs to leave. Uh, 34DX308, uh, Honda Del Sol. So, do you want Which one do you want to? Which one? Okay, I would much rather have that. I'm going to move around so much. Okay, you got it. Good morning. So, our intent, we have three intentions. 
Um, and let me see if I can remember what they are. Um, the first intention is to share some things that we know about intention. The next intention is um, actually to make it a little bit more personal than we usually do when we do our shtick on intention. And um, the third one really is, now where did James go? Here. Right here. Is, is really to celebrate you, James, and your work. So just uh, a little background, as James said, you know, we kind of naively traveled around the world and went to these villages we never heard of and said to the first local person we saw on the street, anybody happy in this charming little village? (laughs) And they would proffer us a name. What, What he didn't mention is that at some point, researchers who knew a lot more than we did said, you know what, you gotta have a control group. So you got to make sure that the unhappy ones are not telling you the same thing as the happy ones. So we uh, actually, so a lot of you live in Marin, we, we put an ad in the Marin IJ that we were looking for unhappy people. Don't, don't ever do that. I wouldn't recommend it. We couldn't even get to everybody, but... And I could, we could tell you more about that. But to kind of set this thing up, we fully expected to write a book. I mean, that was the goal, to write the book. And we thought we had a brilliant idea, which was to do all this traveling and then write a book called The Secrets of a Hundred Happy People. And it would be these individual stories. How does someone do it in Istanbul? And how does someone do it in Buenos Aires? And it would be kind of like, chicken soup for the soul because like that book did pretty well (laughs) the reality was as James mentioned they were all telling us the same thing and in the beginning we fought it we thought well this is a little bit different than that person's story but it did turn out that one of the key things or one of the nine things and I'm going to let you all complete the sentence is that happy people intend to be happy. Yes. What a great group. <laughs> right on cue. Right on cue. I love it. So um, on one hand, I think it's kind of a no-brainer. And on the other hand, you know, it's really pretty for profound that what they told us is when they wake up in the morning, many of them don't even get out of bed till they get themselves excited about the day. Or they have some ritual in the morning as they're brushing their teeth, as they're taking their shower, to set their intention for the day. And sometimes it's just to focus on the joy. So we're going to have you do one little interactive thing, and we promise we'll tie it back together. And it is simply to turn to the person next to you. And I know you're in tight quarters, so you're just going to have to kind of shift your body a little bit. This is Buddhist speed dating. (laughs) And this is going to seem very un-Buddhist for a moment, but um, without any talking, this exercise takes place without any talking, we'd like for you to get in the classic arm wrestling position with your partner. So do that now without talking. 
So we need total silence in the room. Yeah, good. No laughing, no talking. Good. We're going to pretend that after I say the word go, every time you can get your partner's arm down to a 90-degree angle, Rick and I are going to give you $1,000. Now, obviously, we can't really do that. Don't talk. Don't laugh. Please don't hurt yourselves. Go! Don't talk. And stop. All right, shake your arm out. So, why did we do that? I just thought it'd be fun to watch a bunch of people battle it out at Spirit Rock. Um, no, we, we, um, we learned this exercise many years ago because we, we are leadership consultants and we teach leadership, and this is a Harvard School of Business exercise. And in the way that the Harvard School of Business uses it, there's actually a right answer. In the way that we're using it today, there is no right answer. But their right answer is, because it's business, and business is all about what? Money and profit. Thousand for you, thousand for me, thousand for you, thousand for me. So here's the way we used it. We used it to highlight this notion of intention. So the question I have for each of you is when I first got you in this arm wrestling position, which is a little weird, what was your intention? Now, to win is not an intention. It's a goal. And this is where people, I think, get, there's some confusion about what intention is. Intention is not your goal. Your goal is a measurable outcome. It's a benchmark. It's, I will achieve this in this amount of time. Your intention is your mindset. It can only be attitude or behavior. So, for instance, if your goal was to win... Perhaps your intention was to give it every single, it's kind of the how. So for some people in this exercise, their intention is um, just not to hurt their arm. For other people, (laughs) their intention is to just apply enough pressure to keep it in the middle so they figure out why we're doing this. For... Other people, and I'm wondering if we can close those doors in the back just to avoid the noise. Thanks. Um, For other people, it's just to get through the stupid exercise and hope the rest of the day gets better. (laughs) So whatever it is, that's your mindset. So I, I, do we have time to hear? Do you think from a couple? Yeah, yeah. Do we have time? The one that always goes overtime. Yeah. Um, Anybody here want to share what their intention was when you were first in this arm wrestling? Okay, we have someone down here. Oh, good. Can you, can you hear? No. Okay, I'm going to try to use this. Okay, and, and before you do it, because you said our intention, actually your intention can only be about you. So since you couldn't talk, you have no idea what the other person's intention right. was. So what was your intention? Uh, to win and have the other person win as well. Okay. So to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So your, your goal was to win, but your intention was so that you'd each, you'd do it in such a way that you would each walk away with money, it sounds like. So that we would each be winners. There you go. Okay, good. Somebody had a different intention. 
My intention was to have a good time and to do it with my husband, and and I couldn't believe it because he's got Parkinson's, and I couldn't believe how strong he is. Okay, and it was fantastic. Good. I was really wow to have fun. Good. Uh, someone else that had a different one. Yes. Neither one of us was interested in the money, so we stayed in the middle. Yeah, great. So just kept it in the middle. Somebody have a different one. Okay. My intention was not to hurt her arm. Not to hurt your partner's arm. Good. Anybody else? Okay. Oh, right here. I figured the purpose of the exercise was to show us that if you were happy, your arm wouldn't be pushed down. So that's what I was concentrating on. Good. So here's the point. Whatever our intention is, is driving the show. All action comes from intention. But sometimes in this crazy, chaotic world we live in, we're unaware of our intention, but it's still driving the show. So this is one of the things that we learned from the happy people. If intention is driving the show, I might as well consciously choose it all day long. So before I'm about to do something, I take the few seconds to say, what's my best intention, rather than being on automatic pilot? And I know Rick Hansen is, is coming up, and he'll tell us in much better ways than I could about neuroplasticity. And, but we actually change our brain when we consciously set a more positive intention. So here's the, here's the context for the whole thing. We can't always choose our circumstances in life, but we can always choose our attitude and our reaction and our intention. No one can ever take that away from us. So apropos today, what we saw people doing, actually, as we were studying them, and of course we learned to do it ourselves, the truth is, is that every time you set intentions, particularly happy intentions, good intentions, helpful intentions, you're awakening joy. You're stimulating your own body, your own thought process, and you're, you're informing your own lives. This is actually a, a fun day for us because we spend so much time in the business community. We're, you know, our concern really is very much about our clients, so we don't always share that much about ourselves. But we thought we'd just tell you what we've done with intention lately. Because as much as we know about goals and strategic plans and all that stuff, we found ourselves recently falling into the trap. And, and here's what happens. I want to I show you the outcome of it. We, um, Greg, Greg and I go away. We do retreats. We plan projects. We sort of you know, try to get our life in order. And so we were in Israel, and we were having business discussions. And at some point, Greg said, you know, let's do a 10-year plan. A strategy. Sorry, that's right. A 10-year yeah. strategy. Yeah. That's exactly right. What was I thinking? Yeah. Most of you don't know us personally, but we can't do a 10-day strategy. <laughs> right. But it, it sounded really good, didn't it? You know, very businesslike. And, of course, neither of us reminded one another that we even know the statistics on this. Harvard has studied five-year strategies. Do you, do you know what percentage gets implemented? 3%. And that's, these are business people who are trained to do it. But, you know, we sort of sucked ourselves right into a discussion about it. And, you know, then if you also look at our lives, it's not different from your lives particularly. Between us, we have four grown children. We have four extremely aged parents. We travel. We have, you know, a life. 
All of these things do not easily fit themselves into a strategy, as you know. <laughs> Life is full of surprises. Nonetheless, we found ourselves in Akko, Israel, sitting in a restaurant overlooking the oldest continually used port in the world, and we were trying to put together a 10-year strategy. So here's, here's where our backgrounds kind of kicked in. And what I want to share with you is the outcome. What we realized immediately is there's no way to do a strategy. Life doesn't provide the opportunity for a strategy. You can kid yourself. But really, what did we want for the two of us? But also, it's, it really what works is a set of intentions. So I'm going to share with you the intentions that we generated in, in a discussion which has proved to be actually... Um, an amazing discussion that's informed the way we've lived since we've been back, which was only about three months. And we made the decision that um, we only have one goal now. And our one goal we have is to have no goals. <laughs> yeah. If we can just live our lives by every day setting our intentions, whether they're business intentions or personal intentions or whatever, we will be way ahead of the game. When, well, you, when you set a goal, you limit your vision. Because all you're doing is shooting for the goal. Well, and also what Rick's going to share with you, we're calling our core intentions. So they aren't, they don't change day by day. They're really the direction that we uh, commit ourselves to. So we looked at one another and we thought, 10 years, okay, how do we want to be? What kind of intentions do we want to have given our complex life? And what you'll note is that any one of these intentions can stand on its own. But there's actually some tension between, between these intentions. So let me share them with you. Never done this in front of a group, so it's kind, of, it's kind of fun. There's an overriding intention, which is the intention to be creative, to create new things, to create helpful things, and to enjoy ourselves in the process. But here are some more specific intentions, I guess. Enjoyment. We want to make sure that at all times we're doing things that we're enjoying. This doesn't mean ha-ha, by the way. We can enjoy some pretty serious stuff, but it's about a deep sense of enjoyment. Another one was a stable family presence. Part of that is because everyone else in our families are loose cannons on deck. And, you know, Somebody has to be stable. Someone's got to be stable, so that would, be us. that would be us. Yeah. <laughs> Those few of you who know us know exactly how uh, ironic that is. Um, <laughs> So we would be and these stable... <laughs> it's frightening also, yeah, really. Yeah, we've scared a couple of people with these intentions. Um, so yeah, so there's the stable family presence. There's financial well-being. There's a reality to the way we want to live and, and the number of people that we have to fund periodically. So financial st uh, well-being. There's freedom of infrastructure. We've made a decision in the way that we live and the way that we run our business that we actually don't want employees, we don't want an office, we want minimal business machines. We train leadership. And as most leaders, many of you may be leaders, know, you know, leadership is great except for those people, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, we like to talk about leadership, we don't like to do it. Yeah. We often say we love to train leadership, but we are actually individual contributors. We're not, yeah. But so, you know, we don't want the infrastructure. The infrastructure is overwhelming to us, and we'd love to be able to work all over the world, actually without our clients even knowing where we are. We can be in, we can be in Addis Ababa and writing emails and being very happy about it. Um, we, let's see, spaciousness of thought. We do not typically get enough time to really just spend time thinking and enjoying and allowing our thoughts to be spontaneous. 
So we are committed to doing that. And I would say that one of us, I'm not naming names, is more successful than the other <laughs> in, the, in the past couple of months. But, you know, um, it's, it's something to consider. Um, intentional community, something that has become extremely important to us, as opposed to accidental community. We've really started to formally pull together people who we love and who we want to be with and who we want to spend time with and never abuse that. We travel so much it's hard to do it, but we've really done it consciously. Thank you for being part of our intentional community. Um, physical health, another big one, important. Adventure, we really want novelty and change because as we get older, we're seeing some of our friends, some of our associates entrench in their ways of doing things and we just don't want to be that way we want to be able to come over to spirit rock and just have fun and not do a set speech to a bunch of people so constant change um and intellectual growth now all of this of course takes place with an with an intention really to give because as you know giving is it's just a whole lot better than getting. But when you give, you create an exchange with other people that creates community and lovingness and everything else. So these intentions, which we formalized about three months ago, um, have actually had a tremendous impact on the way that we're living because they give us direction without being rigid, without being too purposeful, without being doctrinaire. And what we find is that extremely happy people, and actually the most functional among us, pretty much every day are setting intentions which inform the way that they behave. I set mine this morning because I'm so jet lagged. My intention was to stay energized until I walk out of here. <laughs> and you know what? It works. It's amazing how it works. And I know, I'm using James's words here and Shoshana's words here, but it's, it's that we, every time we set an intention, we are awakening that joy in us. We are directing ourselves, we have a degree of control over our lives, and they allow us to engage much more effectively with the world around us. We do not have to see beautiful people as uh, decaying corpses. <laughs> In fact, I would say it's my intention to not do that. <laughs> so to begin to wrap up here, one, one challenge for all of you, even in, in the next week, every morning... Set your intention for the day, because the seed you plant up here is what you get, if you plant the seed strongly enough. So one that I've been doing all this week is just the intention to help. The intention to help. And it's such a win-win. But when you have the intention to help, then when you're walking down the streets in San Francisco, as I was uh, this week, and you see somebody fumbling with a map, it's a no-brainer. Your intention is to help. So, rather than saying, oh, it looks like they're lost, hmm. <laughs> or, believe it or not, I, I actually have the receipt in the car. Yesterday, I was giving a speech in San Francisco, and I wanted to prepare these handouts, and I ran to Kinko's, and of course, never enough time, and there's a huge line. And I'm in line, and I notice an older gentleman trying to make a photocopy of his passport, and, you know, you have to stick your credit card in over here. And I thought, okay, it's my intention to help. So I got out of line. I helped him do his thing. I got to the front of the line, and the manager of Kinko said, I saw you help that guy. I appreciate it so much and gave me a 45% discount. <laughs> so even though, 
I think it only works if your intention is to help without the expectation of a return. It's kind of amazing, that whole karma of giving and helping. Don't all go to that Kinko's. So to end with a little story, um, part of our research uh, was uh, was going to Vietnam. And in Vietnam, uh, there was an interpreter. And I got to go to what they call this old people's home. And I asked the director, who's the happiest person here? And he said, oh, that's so easy. It's this woman, Batam. And here's Batam's story. She was currently 82 years old. Um, During the war, she was kidnapped by the South Vietnamese and forced into prostitution, but actually to become an undercover spy for them. They told her that if she tried to escape, they would kidnap her husband and her five children and kill them. So out of fear, she complied. During the war, her leg was bombed off and never healed properly. After the war was over, she found that her husband and three of her children had been killed, and the remaining two children refused to have anything to do with her because of the stigma of prostitution. She um, eventually made her way to the home. When I got to meet her, I said, I hear you're very happy. (laughs) And she said, oh, yes, I'm so happy. And I said, why are you happy? (laughs) And she said, because I have so much. I said, what do you have? She said, oh... I have my favorite birds that sing outside my tree every morning. I have the chanting I can hear from the temple. I have my friends that come by every day to visit me. I have the paper they give me. I can write my stories. I have the breeze that I love that comes through my door every afternoon. I have so much. So Batam is that little person that sits on my shoulder when I get into one of those, I can't believe they never called us back after we wrote the proposal. And... And she reminds me that it is so easy to be seduced into the negative. And with that strong intention to see the joy, I like to think of our life that we have now in my life as being in the treasure chest. This is, we're in it. We're in it right now. And every day, I think it's up to us if we want to be happy to have the intention to find the ruby and the pearl and the gem and the gold And like Batam, we can't always choose our circumstances, but we can always choose our attitude and our reaction and our intention. No one can ever take that away from us. So, James, we want to end with a little tribute to you. Yeah, you've you've heard the song, but we've customized it for you. (laughs) Yeah, if only I can remember the words. And, you know... um, you can imagine what kind of music is most appropriate to Spirit Rock. Anyone have a guess? Blues. blues that's Oh, that's interesting. Blues. <laughs> Whoa. That's good. <laughs> Talk to you after the event. Um, anyone else have a guess? <laughs> Chanting. Folk music. Now, we're going to do a little Broadway for y'all. <laughs> I thought we'd shake up the event. Ready? Start high enough. Okay. Right. Life, Life is, is a holiday. We're talking June through May. A nightly sellout show. And baby, we're front row. On those lonely nights, only nights, where the two of us can croon. Happy endings are here, long as we're here with you. Life is a sugar bowl. 
It sevens every roll. Sweet peek at paradise. The view is mighty nice. Ain't got no blues to sing, choose to sing. A melody for you. Happy endings are here. Long as we're here with you. Here's to a best-selling book. Can't wait to take a look. We'll read it front to back. Well, it's part of the facts. No one could ask for more. Kid in a candy store. The jackpot has been hit. We're living proof of it. And as for all that's past, call that past. We've got a heart that's true. Happy endings are here. Long as we're here with you. And you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and yeah, you too. Happy endings are here, long as we're here with do 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 do. Long as we're here with you. Pretty neat. Rick Foster, Greg Hicks, and uh, How We Choose to Be Happy, and their other book, Choosing Brilliant Health, also uh, in the uh, in the bookstore. I highly recommend. Um, and uh, so, with intention, I want to just uh, be. Bef- uh, I want to do one thing about intention uh, with you before you uh, before we have the the next the next guest be you uh, and that is uh, in in the program it's the intention to be to be happy is really the key the buddha says everything starts with intention um, that that's how karma is created and i just wanted to share a uh, a simple little practice that i invite you to get in touch with this is actually uh, from the 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 first uh, the first class which we just did the uh, the other day so uh, if you want to join, you're, you're going to catch up with everyone. So just close your eyes for a moment and uh, feel how you are inside. And maybe for a moment, um, think of a time that you felt real joy. What's brought you real well-being and happiness? Maybe... Uh, being with a great, uh, wonderful friend or doing an activity that you really love. And as you recall that capacity for joy, just notice how it feels in your body and in your mind that you have this capacity. Just relax into that for a moment. And just imagine what it would be like if you have access to that more and more.
rather than a fluke to to just uh, create the conditions for that natural well-being to arise. And now, if you are open to bringing more well-being and joy in your life, just take a few moments and make the heartfelt decision to give that to yourself. That's where the magic happens. You might think of it in terms of may I open to all the happiness in my life. May I be open to well-being or as much love as is inside. Just find the words that resonate for you. Putting this in the center of your life. May I open to true happiness for myself, everyone I know. And if you get in touch with some words, stay connected with them, especially these next few days, like Rick and Greg were were sharing. Everything comes from that decision. Not that it's going to happen in your timetable or uh, as a, uh, on, on schedule, but just inclining the mind to be open to that and doing your part, and then let life do the rest. It seems to happen that way. Okay, now I invite you to open your eyes, and we have a a, a particularly uh, special treat. I I don't think I I've, I don't know if I mentioned it, but we have some incredible musicians who are all part of the joy course um, and uh, sharing there uh, each each month. There's uh, some songs that uh, that particularly uh, inspire the the theme. And for this first one on intention. Uh, I want to invite Eve Decker, who um, is uh, a brilliant and and heartfelt uh, musician and songwriter and friend. She's also part of the the Bay Area group Rebecca Riots, if you're familiar uh, with her. And uh, I'd like her to do a song on intention. Thank you, James. So I think of the heart and mind as a garden. And if I intend to have a beautiful garden, I will cultivate the fruits and flowers, and I will spend a lot of time pulling weeds. It's really hard not to go where my whims urge me to go, but I know what sort of person I'm longing to become. If I want to help anybody in the world before I die If I want the suffering all around us to subside I have got to be more conscious of the things I do and don't do Every little seed in time will flower Plant the ones that lead me down a path toward really helping I am the garden 
but I'm also the gardener. In this very moment, I reproved from choices past. Decker. Eve Decker. Great. Thanks, Eve. Um, I do want to announce again that Honda Del Sol. Is there does anybody drive a Honda here? Honda Del Sol with uh, a green sport Honda Del Sol? Three U D X three zero eight. We've tried. We do. Okay. Okay. So now we're on to the second of the themes uh, of the wholesome states, which is mindfulness, which we practice a lot here at Spirit Rock. If you, uh, if you've been here, you know that. Uh, that, That's what we do. That's our business. Um, (laughs) And it is a wholesome state 
both because it cultivates all the other wholesome states. It's one of the unique mental, the, the unique mental factor that cultivates wholesome states and diminishes, weakens unwholesome states. And also when you are present for a wholesome state, it can deepen and amplify. And uh, so for, um, for we have a very special guest for this next one, but I'd like Shoshana to introduce uh, our next guest because uh, she's had some... Uh, connection and contact with him and want to have you hear her voice as she shares. Well, it's a good thing there isn't any limit to joy and wonder (laughs) and brilliance. (laughs) That was such an amazing um, presentation on intention. So our next guest is going to carry on with that particular level of joy, wonder, and brilliance. Many of you may know Rick Hansen. Um, he lives here locally. Uh, he has been a really generous and most helpful presence in creating the Awakening Joy book. Rick is a clinical psychologist, also a neuropsychologist, and he was there for us even in the midst of trying to finish the deadline on his own book, Buddha's Brain. The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. This is a great book that very, it, it makes neuroscience comprehensible and applicable. He uses lots of personal examples of how your brain, how changing your brain changes your life, which is one of his phrases. Rick um, is also, he sends out um, a Wise Brain Bulletin that you can get online once a month with wonderful information about the latest neuroscience. He puts together neuroscience, Buddhism, and psychology. That's his field of exploration. And he just recently has started a wonderful thing called Just One Thing, a weekly email notice of a practice and a concept based in neuroscience based in Buddhism and psychology. He sends it out to your email if you get on his list, which I'm sure he can tell you how to do. One other thing I want to say about him is, in the course of the book, as I said, he was there for us. We would send a little email saying, well, what about these things? Is this the right way to say this thing about neuroscience? Is this the right way to frame this sidebar? And he would send, or with a question, what about, how, you know, how do we find out more information about such and such? Like, immediately, he would send back a response that would have lists of resources and articles and research things that were all in his brain. (laughs) He didn't even have time to look up where he had them in another place. He'd just pop them out. So you are really going to enjoy this next person, Rick. Rick Hansen. Can I cook up? okay? People pay me not to sing, so (laughs) there's no way. I was whining to my wife there, like, how do you follow that? And you don't. That's it, right there. You totally don't. So I won't, period. And you're lucky. So anyway, 
Well, I, I really appreciate the introduction. I didn't expect it. And um, I want to say for starters that James truly has been, uh, and I'll try not to tear up, um, a profound benefactor for me personally. Uh, when I do meta practice, which is a loving kindness practice where sometimes you'll do it in a formal way where you'll choose a particular person in different categories. One of the categories is a benefactor to whom you send good wishes and so forth. James, I was just reflecting earlier of all the benefactors that ever come to my mind is number one, definitely, the most common one because he's been such a great benefactor. And I mean, we all have, James is our benefactor. I mean, we all have such a beautiful person as our benefactor, you know, uh, um, in our own lives. So uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the scientific underpinnings of what James has magnificently pulled together here and begin by saying, much as he said, to paraphrase it, 2,500 years ago, walking the dusty roads of northern India in an agrarian, rural, feudal culture, very different from our own, uh, the Buddha, the man, the Buddha, said, the mind takes the shape of whatever it rests upon. And now, 2,500 years later, a Canadian psychologist named Donald Hebb said essentially the same thing in a sort of updated way. Neurons that fire together, wire together. In other words, the mind takes the shape of whatever it rests upon, the brain takes the shape of whatever the mind rests upon. In other words, as we think and feel and hope and dream, as we intend, as we fear, as we sorrow, as we sing the blues or the gospels, whatever we do, that is shaping neural structure. In other words, immaterial mental activity, including the thoughts you're having right now, the sensations in your body, the sights you're seeing, is changing your brain. My words are changing my own brain, even as we speak them here and now. For example, literally, people who routinely do a mindfulness practice thicken the part of the brain that's involved in controlling attention. Literally, people who do a regular mindfulness practice thicken the part of the brain that's involved in sensing the internal state of the body, including gut feelings. And also, it's the same part of the brain that tunes into the feelings of other people empathically. It's also true, literally, that if you're a London taxi driver and you learn the twisty streets of London, you thicken the part of the brain called the hippocampus that does visual-spatial memory. Okay, so it's not just uh, esoteric meditators who are literally building out neural structure by what they rest their mind upon. Now, how do you build neural structure, right? That's it. That's kind of the takeaway question. How do we cultivate the mind? How do we cultivate the wholesome? We live in a time that is historically completely unprecedented in that this ancient wisdom tradition in Buddhism, as well as the other great contemplative traditions in the world, in which people have engaged mental training, mental practice, or the Olympic athletes, really, of mental training, these ancient wisdom traditions are now intersecting with Western psychology and neurology to inform each other, to validate each other, and to actually um, develop and present new good practices. In that context, the question then is, of course, how do we use the mind to change the brain for the, to benefit the mind and to benefit the whole being and every other being you know, whose life we touch? The challenge, uh, which... Uh, is that essentially the brain evolved to have gene copies, but it did not evolve to have quality of life. We're capable of great quality of life, 
but the brain has what's called a negativity bias, so that it's inclined to continually scan for threats, remember the negative, store it, and then react to it later. The brain is, as I say, like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. What James has done is to say, not so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that shall not pass. James, Gandalf at the bridge, no, I will take a stand for joy. <laughs> so that's our James. <laughs> yes, James. So what has he done? He's laid out this path with 10 key elements, the ways that people can, in the real world, in the trenches of their daily life, literally do things. Uh, with our minds to change our brains to better our whole beings and everybody else whose life we touch. And one of the key ways to do that is, as he said, through mindfulness. Because attention, which is the essence of mindfulness, where we particularly rest our focused attention, attention is like a combination spotlight and vacuum cleaner. In other words, it illuminates what it rests upon, but sucks it into the brain, right? For better or worse, because deep down, those little neurons that are firing t together and therefore wiring together don't really know what they're resting upon, you know? They just wire together. So the question then becomes, what do we put our attention upon, and what do we do once it rests there? Huh? What James has done is identify, as much as Greg and Rick have done, uh, different wholesome things to rest our attention upon. Good facts, positive facts, we could say. Positive facts about uh, the world, uh, like the so touching example of the woman in Vietnam, you know, the birds outside the window, the breeze, the nice people coming by. Good facts in terms of what we're actually accomplishing or enabling to, to happen in our life uh, day to day. And also, very importantly, good facts about our own natural state, our own true nature, our own goodness. No halos are required here. Just everyday determination, good-heartedness, patience, forbearance, effort, etc., etc., etc. So we put our attention there. James has given us a wonderful list of things to put our attention on that will change our lives. They truly have changed our life. Change, James has changed my life by what he has helped me to put my attention upon. And then once we rest our attention there, it's very important to make the brain Velcro for the positive. Right? so that it really sticks and gets sucked in. Because if we don't rest our attention on something long enough for those neurons to really, really fire together, and a lot of them to fire together, they don't wire together enough. Okay, So I want to propose a little practice here that relates to James' book, and um, in which in three simple steps, you can take in the good. In other words, as we awaken joy within ourselves, and as we see joyful facts, if you will, out there in the world, the opportunity is to take them in so that we literally weave them into the fabric of our brain and ourself. So if you'll do this with me, I'll propose three simple steps that you can do right now. So the first of these, and this is a mindfulness practice. In a sense, it's a concentration practice. You're going to focus on something for about 20 or 30 seconds straight. So first of all, identify a positive fact positive fact about the world, positive fact about your own everyday accomplishments, maybe a positive fact about your own uh, nature. And then first step, let that positive fact become a positive experience. 
allow yourself to feel good about something. Allow yourself to have the needle move. So you register this positive fact as a positive emotion. The positive emotion may well be fairly subtle or mild, like contentment or gratitude or feeling cared about or being glad. And then, second step, really savor it. Let it fill your body as much as it does and stay with it for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row. It's natural for the feeling to fade a little. When it does, see what you can do to rekindle it. Really enjoy and take in this good feeling. Third step, as you savor this experience and enjoy it, sense and intend that it's sinking into you. Maybe like a jewel into the treasure chest of your heart, as Greg said earlier, or like a warm golden syrup sinking down into you, salving old wounds, soothing them, filling up hollows in your heart, uh, becoming a part of yourself, sinking into your body, weaving into your back, your belly, your eyes, your brain. And know that in this moment, you literally have stitched together a little more neural structure into a resource you can take with you wherever you go for greater resilience, greater confidence, greater love, greater joy. And you can open your eyes if you like and come on back to the room. And that's just a little example of what people can do using James's book in a regular basis. In other words, most of the, little, most of the joyful moments in life are little ones. But that doesn't mean they're not important. It's actually the little things that build over time to be something great. And when I think about uh, a little quote from the great philosopher Bertrand Russell, he said, the good life as I conceive it is a happy one. This is a close paraphrase. It's not that um, uh, good people are happy people. It's actually the other way around. It's that happiness inclines us to be good. When we feel that our own heart has something in it, even full to overflowing, it naturally spills out to others. We are naturally lift our attention away uh, above from uh, our own misery or anxiety or anger to see who else needs some help around us, whether it's someone fumbling with a map or a credit card at a Kinko's. You know, our, the cultivation of joy that we engage ourselves actually inclines us toward becoming increasingly generous to other people. And to close here, uh, very sincerely, um, there's a lot of research that shows that there's what's called emotional contagion. In other words, 
if people are grumpy, grouchy, angry, fearful, and miserable, it kind of spreads like the cold, right? In a work environment, in an elevator, in a bed, uh, <laughs> kitchen, corporation, society, world. On the other hand, if people are, are upright and um, have a sense of self-worth and self-confidence and a kind of happiness that isn't so contingent on conditions but is more unshakable than that, then what ripples out from them can fill that elevator, fill that company, and ultimately fill the world. And so this process that James is engaged in, and I hope you all get a copy of his book and virally, you know, Wi-Fi it out into everybody around you, can ultimately make this world a much better place, and it can really use some help. So, thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to hold this. Uh, so we thought it'd be nice for you to hear a mindfulness story from the book. That's what Rick is talking about, mindfulness. Thank you. That was wonderful. This is the story uh, that is from a friend of James, Mary Reinard, who teaches mindfulness meditation in maximum security prisons. One of Mary's students, Matt, seemed an unlikely candidate for meditation. Matt was big and buff and had a temper to match. Before being imprisoned for a violent crime, he had been a Green Beret in the U.S. military, trained to react quickly and forcefully. One day in class, Matt suddenly asked, Can you teach me to control myself? During that session, Mary talked about mindfulness as a way to harness the power of the mind. Rather than being at the mercy, mercy of every whim, she explained, the more conscious we are, the more choice we have. She ended the class with a challenge. Before acting, pay attention to your thoughts and the feelings in your body and choose the way that will serve you best. A few weeks later, Matt arrived at the class, excited to report his success. You won't believe what happened this week, he began. One day at lunch, someone at Matt's table had started razzing him. Inmates are assigned seats in the huge cafeteria, and sitting elsewhere can get them in trouble. Stuck at his table, Matt tried to ignore the man, but found himself feeling more and more annoyed. Then he remembered what Mary had talked about in class. I noticed what the anger was doing to my body, he said. It was tight all over. It was really uncomfortable. I was thinking that if I punched this guy out, there'd be some release. <laughs> at least it would shut him up. But then I thought, hey, the challenge was to choose a different way. Even though Matt knew he could get in trouble, he picked up his plate and moved to another table. I decided to just suck it up and move, he told the class, and get this. As soon as I sat down at another table, I saw all the tension in my body just disappear, like magic. Lunch tasted great. <laughs> the positive result of Matt's action didn't end there. He says, the best part of the story is that this guy came up to me after the meal and apologized. No one ever apologizes in prison. And here was this guy saying he was sorry. You know, 
I think we both left feeling satisfied. Imagine that. If Matt had reacted in his usual way, this scene would likely have ended in a fist fight, maybe a brawl in the cafeteria. He and perhaps others could have been put into solitary. People might have been hurt. But being mindful of what was going on inside him, the tension in his body, and the angry thoughts in his mind enabled Matt to make a different, more positive choice. As a Green Beret, Matt had received highly effective training to react to aggression with aggression. By learning mindfulness, he was able to start changing a pattern that was not appropriate to his circumstances. If Matt can do it, we all can. So now um, we're going to continue with our great treats, and uh, this one is the treat of Betsy Rose, who is one of the the mainstays and uh, main forces in uh, the family program for uh, so many years. Gosh, so many years. We're on the family council together, and uh, it's a pleasure to uh, to serve with her there, and uh she has um, uh, uh, in, uh, fantastic songs for children and for adults uh, about all based uh, or on uh, Dharma practice, but in such a, a sweet, delicious, accessible way. I just also want to mention that, that uh, Betsy and Eve and Jennifer uh, Berezin, who you'll hear in a few moments, uh, all have CDs. Did you bring CDs with you? So... So they're available, and I, I have them all, and I highly recommend them. So um, welcome, Betsy Rose on Mindfulness. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I did, I did set an intention this morning, and, and, and my intention was to celebrate James and all the joy that he has channeled out into the world and touched thousands and thousands of lives, and now with this book, Millions of Lives. And um, that intention has made me have a very joyful day already. Anytime I'm not thinking about myself, I'm happier. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Another place that mindfulness practice is traveling is into schools and children's lives. And not only here at Spirit Rock, but around the country, uh, mindfulness teachers are finding ways to go into public schools and private schools and work with very young children. And I've had the joy of doing that work in Oakland with a group called Mindful Schools. And it's been so wonderful to realize that children are, of course, naturally very mindful because they're naturally in the present. They're naturally in their bodies. They naturally are living right with what's happening now. And so they don't need a lot of training. They just need support that that's really okay and a place to do it together. So I thought I'd share with you a song that comes out of that work. And also because James wants everybody to sing a lot, we're going to sing together. So you, your part of the song for you is breathing. The main, main practice is actually breathing at a particular time, but then once you get the hang of it, you'll sing as well. I can breathe when I walk. I can breathe when I talk. I can breathe when I'm sitting. And watching the clock I can breathe when I'm eating If I just slow down I can taste so much more When I'm breathing 
So now I sing, I am breathing, and then you all take a deep breath in and out. Uh, and don't breathe until then. Uh, I am breathing. Yeah. I am breathing. I am breathing right now. I can breathe when I'm angry. I can breathe when I'm sad. And my heart gets softer and I don't feel so bad. I can breathe when I'm scared and excited too. And I notice right now I am breathing. I am Rose. Oh. Boy, do I feel blessed. Just all these all these people just uh part of what what I do and they help me out. Mm, that's gorgeous. Uh I want to mention that we're we're not gonna take a formal break because it would just be um very complicated and uh, lots of lines that would never end. So when you need to uh, use the restroom, please do. But for now, let's just uh, stretch. If you want to stand in place, this won't be a long. This is just standing in place, moving your body, stretching any way your body says yes, feels good, and let yourself feel how good it feels. Don't miss it. How wonderful. The body knows exactly what to do to feel good, at least with a quick stretch. Anyway, Okay, and then when you're ready, you can uh, sit back down.
So um, now we're going to go to the next wholesome state, which is um, in some ways, um, it's hard to say favorite, which is your favorite wholesome state. Uh, but this is one that is the... M- I find the most direct, quickest route to well-being and joy, and that is gratitude, uh, which is a natural extension. The reason why I, I put it third is as you're mindful and you're present for your experience, mindfulness is really an appreciation practice. What's happening right now? And there's a, um, well, you'll you'll see uh, that gratitude is such a, a quick connection to uh, opening the heart. One one uh, teacher I know, one uh, Tibetan teacher, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, talks about how when we feel that kind of uh, devotion and appreciation and gratitude for life, it's like we open up our satellite dish you know, to receive all the goodness in life. If we're stuck and saying, no, this is wrong, and that's wrong, and we're grumbling and complaining. There's no room for the goodness to enter and be received. Uh, But when there's uh, gratitude, when we say, yes, thank you, thank you to to life, then we open ourselves up, not not just to express our appreciation, but to receive more of all the blessings. And the Buddha talked a lot about receiving the blessings. There's a, a beautiful adaptation of the Blessing uh, Sutta, the Blessing Discourse that Shoshana did that's, that's in the book that I, I really um, uh, highly recommend you check out. So for this, uh, this topic, uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, somebody who's been integral to the, uh, this course and from the beginning, even before the beginning, and who's been integral to my wa- uh, to my life, because it's my wife, <laughs> and that is uh, my uh, my life partner and the love of my life, Jane Barris, who has really uh, taken gratitude practice to heart and uh, been practicing it in a very focused, committed way for. Uh, for many years, and I wanted her to uh, to share a bit uh, about gratitude with you all. So please welcome my wife, Jane. Great to see everybody uh, here today, and uh, I'm really glad to see some really good friends. Thank you. Um, Last year, I had the um, pleasure of um, going to a class with somebody who I had heard about for a long time. His name is Brother David Stendelrest, and um, he wrote a book called Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. And I was really excited about going, and I uh, got there kind of early, and I was watching the people, and 
uh, I thought, well, where is he? You know, this is about to start. Where is he? Who is he? Um, and then I realized that that young-looking man over there was David, and he was, he's actually in his 80s. But he's the kind of guy that just radiates a lot of love and presence and energy and vitality. And so um, I thought, wow, he, he really walks his talk. He's the real deal here. here. And <clears throat> he started out his talk talking about how he was a happy teenager. And I thought, well, I'm a mom of a, somebody that was recently a teenager, and that can be a little tough to negotiate that. And I remember being a teenager myself. So I thought, wow, what was his secrets of being a happy teenager? Well, it turned out that he grew up in um, Vienna, uh, Austria, and it was during the time of the Nazi occupation. And so his uh, family had very little to eat. They ate weed soup um, often. They uh, experienced a lot of bombings, and um, they never knew if they were going to be together the next day. And because he was a very healthy, vital teenager, they were really afraid that he was going to be conscripted and put into the Nazi army and, and, you know, have to do terrible deeds and probably end up maimed or dead. So uh, that was really a hard uh, circumstance to um, go through. And yet, like the other speakers have been saying this morning, um, it's what we do with our circumstances that really determines our happiness. And he made a, a vow to himself. He realized he might not even live till tomorrow. So he was really going to experience everything he could that he was grateful about. And he kept looking for the good and experiencing it. And it's clear that he's just lived from this place. He, that was when he was 18 and 19, and now he's in his 80s, and he's continued to cultivate joy and gratitude wherever he goes, and he's able to pass it on to other and inspire other people. I'm somebody that's been practicing gratitude for I, at least six years or so. There was a point in um, a uh, student class where somebody suggested an email practice, email gratitude practice, and so my friend Bonnie O'Brien Johnson and I decided to do it. And uh, it's the kind of thing that I would really recommend to you if you want to cultivate gratitude, which, as other people have been saying, it's a very it's one of the quickest ways to bring more joy into your life because you're, you're present for what is good and then you um, really take it in. Um, and a gratitude email practice is very helpful because you have a buddy. It's like going to the gym. You have that buddy. Buddy, every once in a while, say, hey, Jane, where are you? You know, come on. And uh, that was really helpful for me to continue my email practice. And when I first started it years ago, it was, um, it was a little bit more difficult for me. I'd sit there and go, hmm, okay. You know, I had a hard day with my teenager, and I was working on my taxes, and stuck on the freeway. Now, what am I grateful for? And I'd kind of sit there and, uh, you know. But at least I have a job, and I can pay, pay taxes, and my teenager's actually a really nice guy. Um, so, and I have a car. So, you know, it depends on which way I was looking at it. And then as we got going more, I realized, oh, it'd be smart. If I'm going to do this at the end of the day, it'd be smart to start 
start early and start looking for these things. And so, <laughs> so I'd really start paying more and more attention, just like Rick was suggesting and Greg and Rick were suggesting and James has been suggesting all along. So I'd pay more and more attention, like, what's going on good in my life? What's really happening for me that, uh, and, and just feeling it, just in my teaching, I'm, I teach um, ESL students, just feeling the connection between me and my students, and even if it's tough, it's really satisfying for me to teach women who have never been allowed to learn to read in their own country how to learn to read in English. And just paying attention to those, all those little daily small activities that really add up to a very, very blessed life. And so through this gratitude practice, I've been able to um, really become much more aware, much more uh, joyful and, and appreciative of all the blessings that I have in my life. And it, it's not just about the things that happen in my life or the experiences that happen in my life. It's also about the relationships in my life. And as you know, I'm, I'm married to a great guy. <laughs> and you know, but even when you're married to a great guy, you can get sort of uh, hedonic adaptation where you just sort of start taking things for granted. And so it's really important that the people that we love the most that we really focus on, how, how wonderful they are, how, appreciate, how we really appreciate them. And I just want to say, James, you're really a kind, creative, patient, uh, friendly, and very supportive person. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, while I'm on the, um, the gratitude role, I want to thank Shoshana also, because um, I watched the two of them work together on this book for quite a long time. And I really respect how you've helped to create this book and the wisdom you've brought to it and the kindness and the clarity. So thank you. And uh, I, I also want to tell you about someone else that I'm really grateful for who's not with us today. He would, be, would have been here. And he's a friend, a very close friend, uh, Don Flaxman. He was the president of the board here at Spirit Rock. We did our first retreat together back in 1976. We went to this doubleheader where we had Jack one night and Joseph the next, and Jack and Joseph for two weeks. So it was very compelling. We both came out and said, hey, we think this is pretty good. We're going we're gonna to stick with it. And um, we decided that we made this commitment. We were kind of not wanting to, to suffer as much, you know. And we really wanted to go for what was going to work for us. And through the years, we, we um, stayed really deep, close friends. And um, we both ended up working uh, on the Spirit Rock board when the, the um, Spirit Rock was just starting to form. And we were with uh, James and Wes and Sylvia and Jack and a variety of people that we were on this board together. And it was tough at first. We were looking for land. And we were finally finding this land. And how could we come up with the money and on and on. But we went through all these processes. And, and Don was a really great president. I mean, he was somebody that could pull, up, pull together all these different divergent beliefs and really make everyone feel very comfortable and very valuable. And so um, 
I was really, really sad to hear two years ago that he had terminal pancreatic cancer. And um, so, so James and I um, were in contact with him, of course, and we went down to see him last Thanksgiving, and we, we knew that it was getting close to the end for him. And we were talking about Martin Seligman. We, had, we were familiar with Martin Seligman's research um, on authentic happiness and how he suggests with gratitude that you really write a letter to um, people that you're really grateful for, and then you take it one step further, you read it to them. And so that's what we did. We pulled off the side of the road, and we just spontaneously wrote our letters, and we read it to them. And it was very moving. It was really... You know, we so often, we know that we love these people, and that we know that they know that we love them, but it takes the whole gratitude thing to a much, much higher level. If we really, really just uh, tell them straight up. And so I really suggest that practice to you, to write somebody a letter, somebody that's meant a lot to you. <coughs> write it to them and read it to them. Um, and I just want to also tell you a little bit more about what kind of guy um, Don was. And, and, and it's, in, it's in the book, but I have it here. <laughs> um, when James was talking to him be after he got his terminal diagnosis, he asked him, uh, well, how are you doing you know, with all this? Uh, and, and Don said, I'm now in the richest period of my life. Now that I have less time, I'm more open than I've ever been. I'm amazed at how much joy is available just by smelling a pretty flower, seeing a hummingbird, or hearing a friend's voice. I don't waste my time complaining. Expressing love and gratitude is the most important thing I can do now. So I thought I would suggest that we do a, a really short little gratitude practice. And if you want to, um, just get comfortable. Close your eyes if you want to. And um, let's just um, take a few moments and think about some of the people and things that we're grateful for in our life. And you might begin by feeling grateful that you're sitting here at Spirit Rock with hundreds of other people who are also committed to making choices for deeper happiness. And as each person or thing that you're grateful for comes to mind, say silently to yourself, I'm grateful to, or I'm grateful for. And with each of them, pause to feel the experience that the gratitude evokes. Feel it in your mind, and feel it in your body.
just stop and take in the fullness of feeling gratitude itself. Just how great and how, what a wonderful opportunity to know that we can redirect our minds to feeling grateful. And I want to close by saying that, uh, by quoting Meister Eckert, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that would suffice. It's my wife. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have another treat in a moment. Um, but uh, before we do, I thought I'd uh, read uh, possibly my favorite uh, story in the book because it's so, um, it hits home. Uh, and this is a gratitude story some of you have heard if you've come to uh, my class in Berkeley. Um, that has to do with my mom. One year I was in Los Angeles visiting my then 89-year-old mother. She's now 91. This is two years ago. I brought with me a copy of Greater Good, a magazine published by a couple of brilliant minds at the University of California at Berkeley. Their focus is on reporting the breaking research on altruism and well-being. The topic of the particular issue I had with me was the beneficial effects of gratitude. As we sat at the dining room table eating the special eggplant dish my mother always makes for me, I told her about some of the findings. She said she was impressed by the reports, but admitted that she had a lifetime habit of looking at the glass half empty. I know I'm very fortunate to have so many things to be thankful for, but little things just set me off. She said she wished she could change the habit, but had doubts whether that was possible. I'm just more used to seeing what's, gone, what's going wrong, she concluded. After dinner, my mom and I broke out the Scrabble set, as we often do. She's a terrific player and derives great joy from trouncing her poor son, <laughs> which she did last week when she was up here. Our conversation continued as the lines of tiles filled the board. You know, Mom, the key to gratitude is really in the way we frame a situation, I began. For instance, suppose all of a sudden your television isn't getting good reception. That's a scenario I can relate to, she agreed with a knowing smile. One way to describe your experience would be to say, this is so annoying I could scream. Or you could say, this is so annoying and my life is really very blessed. She agreed that could make a big difference. <laughs> but I don't think I can remember to do that, she sighed. <laughs> so together we made up a gratitude game to remind her. Each time she complained about something, I would simply say, and, to which she would respond, and my life is very blessed. <laughs> I was elated to see that she was willing to try it out. Over the next few days, as the complaints rolled off her tongue... We had many chances to play our little game. We both would chuckle each time she dutifully gave her agreed-upon reply. Although it had started out as just a fun game, after a while the exercise began to have some real impact. 
Her mood grew brighter as our week became filled with gratitude and a genuine good time. After I got home, I called my mother a lot during the first few days to support her in her gratitude practice and keep it alive. Miraculously, she kept at it, and the new habit took hold. My sister, who'd been out of town, called me when she got back. What did you do to mom, she asked. This is true. (laughs) To my delight and amazement, my mother has continued doing the practice, and the change has been revolutionary. Seven months after my visit, she sent a card for my birthday. As it is our family tradition, it contained a poem that she wrote for the occasion. This one I especially cherish. Even though she started losing her sight during those months, the effects of her gratitude practice are evident in this poignant excerpt, and it goes to show you that you can teach an elder human new tricks. This is the poem, part of it. Ninety is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that caused the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. The choice is ours. We can go through life focusing on the burdens or letting our challenges serve as reminders of the blessings that also surround us. Maybe the story of my 90-year-old mother can inspire you to remember in the midst of life's hassles that your life, too, is really very blessed. So... Now, it gives me great uh, delight and another blessing in my life, and that is that Jennifer Berezin uh, is part of this uh, joy course and program and here for the day. And Jennifer uh, is, is like the other, like Betsy and Eve, just an amazing uh, gifted musician and uh, deep wisdom teacher. And she's, uh, she's going to share a, a, a song uh, that is particularly um, uh, meaningful for me. As I wrote the book, as I wrote my, uh, my parts, often just to get into an uplifting creative spirit, I would play this song and the, the, the CD over and over uh, just to open my heart. So um, thanks so much for being with us, Jennifer, and sharing it with us. So, uh, so good to be here with you. Look at all, all these people. It's just so wonderful. Thank you for having us all be part of this journey with you, James. We've all just been a gift to all of us. So this is for us all to sing together and send out so that even the turkeys far up on the hill can hear us, okay? And way beyond, way beyond.
jasmine breeze like incense in my head moon high in a cold black sky illuminates my bed the train outside my window Keeping vespers in the night Singing praises Praises for the world So I don't have much of a voice Because I've been on a silent retreat for a whole week And just walked down the hill So if you know the words to this I would appreciate the help Because this is the first time I've talked in eight days Let's try it from the beginning. Jasmine, like incense in my head. That's so much better. Thank you. <laughs> Moon high in a cold black sky illuminates my bed. The train outside. Keeping vespers in the night Singing praises Praises for the world Life can make you bitter This life can turn you cold I've spent most of my own just trying to crack the code. But if I die tomorrow, may the last word that I know Some predict the rapture Where we all will leave this place The chosen ones will pack their bags for Somewhere out in space But the holiest words I've ever Thought or sung or prayed We're praises Praises for the world Okay, here we go
all creatures everything we love in the rivers. Praises to our children. Praises Jennifer Barrison. Jennifer Barrison. Wow. Pretty neat. (laughs) We have um, one more theme before uh, we take a break for for lunch. And and in the afternoon, uh, just to uh, whet your appetite, uh, we're going to be blessed with some Amazing people, my dear friend and colleague Sylvia Borstein, my dear friend and former housemate and colleague Wes Nisker, uh, and my dear friend and uh, inspiring uh, uh, new friend and teacher Anam Tupton Rinpoche, uh, among other things. So um, please uh, come on back after lunch. <laughs> And get dessert. Um, uh, And now, uh, before we... uh, Our last theme for the morning, uh, and the way that um, made sense to me as I was putting it all together, uh, these different wholesome states, is uh, what we practice a lot here, uh, opening up to the hard stuff. If If there's only about feeling groovy uh, as a as awakening joy, it would be missing uh, a big part of reality because life has the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And so we need to know not only how to work with the, with the hard stuff, which is inevitable in life, but how to use it as a path to deepening our 
understanding, opening our hearts, and um, awakening the joy inside. And for this, uh, I, uh, it gives me a great pleasure to have uh, Shoshana Alexander come up and, uh, and share this piece. So welcome, Shoshana. This isn't on, James. Is it on? Is it? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, excuse me, my little discombobulated. That song was so beautiful. And it's, it's very difficult, I find, to sing praises to the world without being aware of all the suffering um, and all the beauty. It's very wistful. Thank you. I thought before we move into this next topic, um, we might just stop for a moment. Let yourself go inside. And remember where we started this morning with intention. You might recall what your intention was that you set. You might recall some of that delight of listening to Rick and Greg. There's been a lot of laughter in that. And then moving on to mindfulness and hearing this amazing way that neuroscience corroborates these practices that we've been doing, as Rick Hansen let us know about. And then on into gratitude, perhaps remembering the experience in that beautiful meditation that Jane led us in. All of those feelings that we were those people, places, events we're grateful for. Now, for a moment... If you'll open your eyes gently, come back. Think of two words that describe your experience and your body and your mind and turn to someone next to you and just tell them those two words.
All right, thank you. Anybody like to say, just toss out, please? What were any of your words? Humility. Softening. Peaceful. Beauty. Well-being. Possible. Love. There was one here. Hope. Yes. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So there's all of these possible ways we're aware of this in this course of moving into states of joy and happiness. And here we are in a Buddhist center, and James's course and the book are based in Buddhist principles, and so we know there is that pesky little truth, the first noble truth, that there is suffering. There's suffering in our own lives. Many of you may have come here aware of perhaps having lost a job, knowing others who have, others who are suffering with illness, maybe your own self. You're confronting different ways in which the body fails. And then there's the suffering and the world. Uh, all of us, I'm sure, are, have been seeing all of the pictures of what's going on in Haiti. So how do we deal with that? How, how do we incorporate joy along with the undeniable? Well, as we know, the Buddha didn't just say, there's suffering in the world. So long, you know. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> we got that sense in the second noble truth that it has something to do with our attitude, um, how we want things always to be the way we want them to be. And uh, the third noble truth, that there's an end to it. And the fourth, that there's a way. And those ways all have to do with the mind. So there are a lot of happiness courses out there. But what's unique about this one is it's about changing the mind. So I'd like to read one little section here of the book called, this part is called Finding Joy in Difficult Times. The thought of finding joy may seem out of touch with reality, especially during times of great challenge in our own life and in the lives of others. Being joyful in a world of suffering can feel self-centered or like sticking our heads in the sand. Someone with this perspective stood up to speak at an opening session of the Awakening Joy Course. I'm having a big reaction here, he confessed. All this talk of well-being and joy seems so disconnected from what's going on in the world. It's like we're all sitting around safe and comfortable singing. Someone's crying, Lord, kumbaya. There were lots of nodding heads in the group. Together, we ended up dubbing this the kumbaya factor. And it is one of the most convincing reasons to stop looking for joy before we start. Focusing only on the terrible things in the world and overlooking the beauty and goodness can lead us to pull back from life and fall into despair. Staying in touch with the well of joy enables us to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. 
it can motivate and support us in making a positive difference in our lives and in the world, not only through actions we might choose, but also through the uplifting effect we can have by those we're in contact with. Follows in this a quote from Howard Zinn, who many of you know just passed away just a few days ago. Uh, a wonderful person, written the people's history of, uh, of America, a number of other books. Uh, this was from an article that he wrote called The Optimism of Uncertainty. An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly happy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. The course, the Awakening Joy course, is not only, is not, <laughs> is not only, is not about denying the hard stuff. In fact, dealing with sorrow wisely when it comes is one of the essential practice themes of awakening joy. So how do we do that? We've been here experiencing the wholesome states that James is talking about. And each one of these is expansive. It opens us up. Gratitude, love, joy. Each one opens us. And those other states that are considered unwholesome contract us. Anger, impatience, ill will, deception. Right? You can just feel the contraction that comes with that. The other day at, at the Awakening Joy course, Master Ming Tong Gu, who is a, a Qigong master, pointed out that the words for the pictograms for happiness in Chinese are kai xin, which mean open heart. That's the perfect clue on how to work with difficult times and yet remain open to the possibility of joy. If we keep our hearts open, even in face of the hard times, then our hearts are open. Then when there are any of those other positive, wholesome states, we're ready for them. I'm sure you all know that little saying, the way out is the way through. Going through even the difficulties with an open heart rather than clenching down. I'd like to read one of the lovely poems that is in here from... Uh, Dana Folds, who is a friend of James. I hope I can find it here. Um, just a second, sorry. There are several of these throughout the book. Yeah, I've got it, James. It's 94. Thank you. 
It's on page 94 for all of you. Would you please turn to page 94 <laughs> in your text. Um, this is a poem called Allow. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and successes. When loss rips off the doors of your heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Uh, do we have time, James, to read Nancy's story? All right. So I'd like to read another story from the book. Uh, this is someone who, in face, as you will hear, of an amazingly difficult situation, kept her heart open. And what came of that? Nancy went through indescribable sorrow when her 14-year-old daughter, Julia, took her own life. Nancy decided to come to a med meditation retreat at Spirit Rock with James, seeking a way to cope with her pain. She found that meditation practice provided her a refuge and helped her remain sane in the midst of the swirl of emotions she was feeling. Each February, she returned for another retreat, sitting with her grief, anger, and confusion. Each year, she and James shared a ceremony honoring the memory of her daughter. Little by little, over the course of four or five years, Nancy learned to accept her daughter's tragic death and eventually to find the willingness to live again herself. During one of her retreats, she shared an important realization. She understood that it wouldn't do her or anyone else any good to let that tragedy block all the love that was inside her. She knew that her daughter would much rather have her mother find happiness than freeze frame her life. She de decided then that being present for other parents facing the same tragedy would be the best way to honor her daughter. After that retreat, she volunteered as a support group leader for parents whose children have died in that same way. One day she sent a card to James with this message on it. I have received a gift that is beyond words. I've witnessed my deepest despair, the, the darkest, most wounded quarters of my heart, and learned not to flinch or back away. I rested in love and even tasted joy, all the while still knowing the sorrow of my loss. A few days ago, I held a bereaved mother in my arms as she sobbed. She had lost her son to suicide. I held her to my heart as she held on for dear life. And as I rocked her, it was as if I were rocking Julia, rocking myself, rocking the broken hearts of all beings. In that rocking, in that holding, we were all held in one heart. I have been so blessed. So, 
the secret is open heart. <laughs> open heart. Even though it seems as if it will hurt more, it's actually that place, right, that allows us to be human, that allows us to be one with everyone else. And, you know, I love the yin-yang symbol. It's like in the center of the dark part is the little white dot. In the center of our sorrow, we remember there's joy. And in the center of the white section is the little black dot. In the center of our joy, we remember there's sorrow. So to finish, I just would like to read one more thing from one of my all-time favorite poems. I'm just going to read an excerpt of it. There's a small quote of it in the book. Um, It's called A Brief for the Defense by Jack Gilbert. The poor women... Oh, no, I think I'll start at the beginning. Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while someone in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. Thank you. Thanks. you got to open to it all. And the interesting thing is when you're willing to open to it all, as Shoshana said, we, we keep our hearts open to all the goodness as well. And the things that we are afraid we'll get overwhelmed with, um, have a, a space to keep on moving through. And so you, you learn everything that you need to learn. You know, that's, that's, that's what the hard stuff gives us, the lessons that we need. And we see, yes, this too is part of life. But if we are afraid to open to it, it just sticks. And the more we try to run away from it, the more we are engulfed in our fear and confusion. So the way out is through. And there are a number of supportive practices, and we go into it in in the book, of how to work with these things and see this is... is, The Buddha has a beautiful teaching where suffering is the, the start of this list, as there are many lists. Suffering can be the causative factor for faith. How many people came to the spiritual uh, path out of looking for some answers to their suffering? Just raise your hand. 
look around, you know. It's not just a theory. It moves us, it shakes us out of our complacency into seeing what, how can I make sense of all of this? How can I let go of my agenda of thinking what it's supposed to be to, to really understand what I'm meant here to learn? Suffering can be the causative factor for faith in this list. The next faith can be the causative factor for gladness because you feel so grateful that there's another possibility. Gladness is a causative factor for joy. Joy is a causative factor for uh, happiness and contentment and equanimity and all the way up to complete liberation. So it's not if the suffering comes, it's when it comes, it can be the springboard to our deepening compassion, understanding, and yes, as Nancy saw, even joy. She is a radiant being, by the way. Shoshana met her for the first time the other night, and I said, wait till you meet Nancy. She glows. She still feels her sorrow. We're going to do our ceremony in a couple of weeks here in, in February, but the rest of her life is dedicated to just sharing the depths of, of that beauty in her heart, and she radiates. So whatever hard stuff you're going through, don't think it'll get in the way. It becomes your um, your path, part of your path to awakening the deepest openings in the heart and your joy too. So now um, for our next treat, Betsy has a song uh, about this theme. So please, Betsy. believe after this we have lunch we have a break right so so this is sort of our closing moment and i think that i want to um bring forward a song that that has a lot of joy in it just the way the song feels and when you sing it with me you'll feel the joy of it but what it's really um i think this song follows shoshana's teaching really well because it's about the fact that when we hold everything that's going on in the world with a lot of space and a lot of openness, we kind of realize that we never really know the end of the story. It's like something awful happens, and you think, this is it. This is, this is it's set in stone. And then something else happens later that's like um, mitigates that, or, or you, you learn more about what was going on, or what was awful becomes turns good, just like the story about Nancy. We never know what time it is. We never know if this is the end or the beginning or the middle. And when we look at our world in, in the global way, we don't know what time it is. We don't know if we're, our society is collapsing or about to give birth to something incredible. And not knowing is a really wonderful place to be because then we can open to what do I want to offer in this moment. So that's what this song is all about. Long introduction. There are those who try to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is only time to move slowly. There is no time not to love. We've got all the time in the world All the time in the world We 
may be going to hell in a handbasket Or right on the edge of something fantastic Since we don't know what time it is We've got all the time in the world Okay, and I want you to sing this with me And this is a great opportunity to sing a rhyme That I swear has never happened in history before Which is handbasket and fantastic So let's get on it, here we go Got all the time in the world We've got all the time in the world All the time in the world We may be going to hell in a handbasket Right on the edge of something fantastic Since we don't know what time it is We've got all the time in the world Now grass can only grow so fast Clouds have to wait on the wind And dark cocoons can only burst When the butterfly spreads her wing And hearts and minds need time For their wisdom to unfurl For the wings of inspiration To carry us into a brand new world We've got all the time in the world All the time in the world we may be going to hell in a handbasket Or right on the edge of something fantastic Since we don't know what time it is We've got all the time in the world It may be urgent, it may be too late Or we may be right on time We may be at a point in evolution Where there's a quantum shift of heart and mind It may be a long, slow dying Or a miracle of birth But whatever time we're living in We've got all the time on earth Yes, we've got all the time in the world All the time in the world We may be going to hell in a handbasket Or right on the edge of something we don't know what time it is We've got all the time in the world All the time All the time We've got all the time in the world Yes, we do. Betsy Rose. So um, we don't have all the time in the world for lunch, but we have uh, about uh, an hour. What was it? An, what's the weather? At? We were going to say like an hour and uh, and a half. Is that uh, no? Can you do? Okay, one hour. Well, we were going to do. Okay, how about uh, an hour? An hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah, because just uh, to get out and oh, oh and uh, in the last part, uh, Shoshana and I'll be here and uh, and we can sign some books uh, if you'd like. But that'd be great if you can do it in an hour and fifteen minutes because we've got a a full uh, a full afternoon. So come back uh, at one forty-five. We'll be ready to go. And I also before you go, I just want to uh, extend my deep gratitude to Granya. Holson and all the volunteers that helped out. They've done a fabulous job. So enjoy your lunch.
Here's a here's an extra credit assignment. Taste it and let yourself enjoy it. Okay, come back at a quarter to see you.